This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 29th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 232 of Defender Radio. For thousands of years, humankind has studied the delicate interplay of species across the vast web of life. And for thousands of years, we've successfully screwed it right up. From the time of Aristotle to today's grade 1 classrooms, understanding how ecosystems work has been a vital part of scientific study. But what we don't know, or more appropriately, what we can't fully and accurately measure and predict, far outweighs what we do know. One of the greatest risks facing ecosystems, and one that we are almost always directly responsible for, are invasive species. From domestic cats, to insects like the emerald ash borer, to fungi causing disease in bat colonies, havoc is stretched across the globe. And ecological scientists like Dr. Ewan Ritchie at Deakin University in Australia are dedicated to trying to understand and when possible measure the minute roles that all of these species play in ecosystems. In a recently published study, Dr. Ritchie and his colleagues explore the attempts to manage invasive species and the consequences, some of which may lead to significant changes in management practice. Dr. Ritchie joined Defender Radio to discuss this paper, the role predators play, and how we can work together to improve policy for animals and the environment around the world. Could you explain why invasive species studies is something that should be of great importance to everybody, pretty much around the world, regardless of, of ecosystems and economics and so on? Yeah, well, I guess in essence, the two major threats that I think most people would agree on um, to biodiversity are... Um, habitat loss and modification and actually invasive species would probably come in second. Now, climate change, of course, is the third one and certainly a significant risk, but probably more of a future risk. It's certainly having impact on species now, but not nearly as profound as the impact that both habitat loss and invasive species have already had. So um, focusing on invasive species, therefore, is pretty important. And how do invasive species damage an ecosystem, or why are they considered such a huge threat? What are they doing that, that creates such a problem? Yeah, well, I guess there's a range of effects that invasive species can have. That might be in terms of predation, in the case of, say, red foxes or feral cats, consuming large numbers of native animals. Um, they can also transform habitats. So if you think about you know, feral herbivores, so let's just say wild goats in the Australian continent coming in, and changing the structure of habitats, but also being vectors for disease. So feral cats, as an example, carry, carry toxoplasmosis, uh, which is a disease that can kill animals um, when they contract it, but also modify their behaviour and, and change a whole range of things about their populations and, and individual survival, etc. So, yeah, look, there's many ways an invasive species can have a huge impact on the environment. Yeah, we also often hear about uh, invasive plant species, which is one I think yep, is absolutely. underestimated. Uh, now, in regards to this paper, I, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate throughout our, our, our chat here, um, just so you know, I'm not an idiot. Um, but <laughs> I, I guess like, I, I got to ask, um, why does this study still ongoing? So the, 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 
The paper is Interactions Between Invasive Predators and Other Ecological Disturbances. So one would think we know all we're going to know by this point about this segment of, of ecology. Yeah, one would think. <laughs> Unfortunately, the answer is we don't. Um, and I think different parts of the world uh, do this issue, if you like, better than others. So um, as an example, in New Zealand, I think they do a reasonable job of managing multiple species and their interactions, um, you know, I guess with an eye to seeing, you know, how do you manage interactions between species to have the best conservation outcome? The, the reason why we're publishing this work is that so much of our management still is very much focused on single species or on single processes. So, you know, as an example, if you have a, um, you know, a red fox problem, then the sort of um, the feeling is we should go out there and kill foxes and then the job's done. But of course, <clears throat> then you might end up with too many feral cats because red foxes control cats. Likewise, um, we're burning habitats in many parts of the world for a whole range of reasons. One is to protect humans and their assets. And of course, when we put a fire through, that changes the habitat, opens it up, and it means that things like feral cats and red foxes have easier access to their prey because there's less cover. Um, and yet, our management doesn't actually account for that. So we don't manage pest animals at the same time as you know putting those fires through habitat. So we really need to do a much better job of <clears throat> accepting that you know processes as well as species interactions happen at the same time, of course. And as you say, that really is Ecology 101 but it's not really reflected very well in our ongoing management. And why is there a reason for that? Um, I, again, the, the, the certain logical part of everybody who's listening to this uh, when we air it is going to be, well, if this is pretty clear, and, and frankly, the, uh, the graphics that are included in this study are probably among the most easy to understand I've ever seen in such <laughs> a study. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, but it seems obvious. So why are policies not reflecting what we currently know and what we're continuing to learn about these interactions? Yeah, look, I guess there's a, a whole ra range of issues why, you know, that hasn't um, ha happened. I guess there's been a probably a growing realisation through time that, you know, ecology is complex. I think uh, many scientists joke and say that ecology uh, is not rocket science. It's much more complicated than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's true that if you try and sit down and think about how every different species in an environment might interact, and then you try and actually try and take that into account in a management sense, that's really tricky to do. It doesn't mean we can't do it, um, but yeah, it is tricky. But you know, there's I think um, rapid advances in statistical methods that actually allow you to see the effect of one species on another. And therefore also model, okay, what happens if we tweak that? If we pull one lever, what happens in the rest of the ecosystem? So, you know, this is the whole trophic cascade type stuff, which again has only really um, risen to prominence again in the last sort of 10 years, particularly interactions between predators. Um, but I think it's, it's really difficult for people to think about multiple species at once. And then, yeah, if you overlay that with, you know, habitat loss and modification, um, you know, fire, um, human subsidies of food, so, you know, tips and, and the, th the effect that has on species, you can see instantly it's quite a hard thing for a policymaker to try and come up with um, ways of tackling all those issues simultaneously. But just because something's tricky doesn't mean we shouldn't actually take that challenge on. And I think it's really been statistical advances probably in the last sort of five, ten years that are allowing us to start actually, um, you know, coming to terms with that. 
Yeah, and one of the things noted in here, um, in this study, and that's, I believe, what we spoke about the, the first time we chatted, is top predator declines. That's the subheading. Um, so could you go over why the, the large carnivore decline throughout the world, uh, and it is a rather frightening phenomenon, uh, why that's influencing even down to, like you said, small red foxes or feral cats? Yeah, so there's there's two main important effects that uh, large predators, carnivores, have in ecosystems. One is controlling herbivore numbers. So if you imagine wolves running around eating elk, of course that has a benefit to the plants because there's less elk eating those plants, and that benefits, therefore, songbirds, um, insects, a whole range of species in that same um, habitat. So that's a, a classic cascade. Um, the same could be said for dingoes and kangaroos. You know, kangaroos are a native animal, but unchecked um, by a predator, they can increase dramatically in their numbers and have adverse effects on vegetation. So they remove both cover as well as the food for other species. The other really important role that the top predators are having is um, controlling other predators. So um, and Australia is a, a good example of this. You know, Australia has lost more native mammals than anywhere else in the world in the last 30, uh, 200 years. So we've lost 30 native man- mammals. Over the same time period, North America has lost one. And, and one of the reasons for that is that red foxes and feral cats have run right over a fauna that is largely naive to red foxes and, and, and cats because they haven't evolved um, with them. But dingoes control feral cats and foxes so they can have an indirect benefit on those smaller animals. <clears throat> so you're right that we're sort of losing um, top predators around the world um, for, for a range of reasons. I think what's also exciting, though, is that in other parts of the world, there is a, is a bit of a resurgence so that, in, you know, even in parts of the US, you know, mountain lions are making a comeback, um, wolves are making a comeback, and in Europe, um, wolves, bears, lynx, and other predators as well um, are coming back into areas that they haven't been seen in for decades, in some cases centuries. So it's true that overall, I think the picture is um, quite grim for top predators, but I think it's also worth remembering that the rewilding movement and and sort of the resurgence of some predators in the world gives us hope that we can actually restore some of these ecosystems. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416 750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com
This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from Dr. Ewan Ritchie of Deakin University in Australia to talk invasive species and wildlife management policy. Now, I, I read a, a study very, very recently um, that, and I, I don't believe it was published, so I'll, I'll, I'll lead with that, but it did note that there is no magic number when we talk about wildlife populations and therefore wildlife managements. And that seems to be the constant struggle of managers and policymakers is that, well, if we're going to take control of this situation, we need to know how many, how much, how often, etc. But there really is not enough data out there to support clear numbers. You, there is a lot of guesswork that goes on. Um, how, how does that influence both the research you're doing in terms of invasive species and the interactions with other uh, uh, factors, as well as the, the policy that may come out of it? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I think there's probably at least two answers to that. that, that there's right that there is no magic number. Um, there's no magic number of top predators for a couple of reasons. First of all, that um, top predators um, affect other species in two ways, at least. But one is that they obviously kill other animals. But also by killing animals, animals fear them. And so if you have a dingo in a landscape, even if it's not um, running around killing every single fox, those foxes are aware that that dingo is present in the landscape. And so even with a few top predators in a landscape, you can make an argument that they are still important in that ecosystem. So, um, you know, people often say, well, you might need to have 10 dingoes in an area to have any positive benefit. Well, that might not be true. Even a few might be helpful. But the other really important thing is to remember is that, you know, wolves aren't wolves and dingoes aren't dingoes and lions aren't lions. If you're out there and you're managing these species and you're disrupting their social structures, their behaviours, you can't assume that every wolf or every dingo is doing the same thing. And this is a real problem, um, using Australia again as an example, a lot of what's happening in Australia is that we're controlling dingo uh, populations to reduce livestock loss, but we're breaking down their pack structures and their behaviours. So we often end up with lots of young dingoes, um, often not very, um, don't have much experience in hunting because they haven't learned from older individuals because those older individuals, of course, are dead because they've been controlled. And so you have all these sort of young individuals running around with not much idea about what they're doing. And ironically, <coughs> or, you know, sort of counterintuitively, you can actually have worse outcomes with more, with more dingoes because you have lots of young dingoes killing livestock and not really knowing how to hunt things like kangaroos that have never learnt. Yeah, and that's actually something we saw with uh, wolves recently. There was a study, it was in Montana, I think, where they did that. And they, they realised that where wolf control was in place in higher volumes the amount of uh, depredation on livestock increased. Yeah, that's right. And so that story is playing out in Australia that, yeah, the more you control, actually, you often lead to um, higher stock loss. So it's a vicious cycle, of course, because, you know, you control dingoes and their stock loss goes up and then people go, well, what, what should we do? Well, it's not working. We need to control them more. So we just go around and around and around in this vicious cycle. So getting back to your question about, you know, what's a magic number, I think really the question we really need to ask is, should we be controlling top predators um, if we don't really know um, what the sort of flow and effects of this might be, but there is suggestion that it might be negative. And the other thing, of course, to think about is that, um, <clears throat> you know, if you just focus your attention on controlling, say, dingoes, but they control foxes um, and they also control kangaroo populations, 
then by controlling dingoes, you've bought yourself two other problems. You now have too many kangaroos to worry about and too many foxes to worry about. So the question comes back to um, when we're doing management, we need to think in a much more integrative, holistic type way so that we can understand the whole range of um, positive and negative effects that species have and how they are being affected by other processes so that we can make the best decision. I guess I, I have to then end with what should people be doing? So a, a lot of the folks who are going to be listening are animal advocates. Um, they're involved in yeah. various movements, they're involved in various political parties. To me, this kind of research really needs to be in the forefront. It needs to be talked about. But the unfortunate reality is people want action. And what I get from this is a lot of let's sit back and read some more first. <laughs> so what yeah. what message should people be carrying forward as a result of the research that you and your colleagues are doing? Yeah, look, I don't think we should be sitting back and reading more. I think there's a couple of things we need to be doing. I think we need to have a lot more research looking at how we can accommodate different interests. So, you know, it's true that if you have dingoes in an area, um, sheep um, are at risk and you need to, of course, take the um, consideration of, of, of graziers into account. But instead of killing dingoes, there's other methods for, you know, I guess having your biodiversity um, as well as agricultural benefits at the same time. So we can use guardian animals as an example. And yet they're not being prioritised enough, I'd argue, in Australia and probably really um, in many countries. So that's one approach. But even just sitting people down, getting different, different groups down and actually going through a decision-making process about, OK, well, we want to have these biodiversity benefits but we also want to have um, cattle grazing and sheep grazing at the same time, how can we do that in a more sophisticated way? Because what we're doing a lot of still, you know, in terms of controlling pest animals and trying to reduce livestock loss is what we've been doing for a long, long time. And clearly it hasn't worked out very well in many cases. Um, I think there's that supposed Einstein quote, which says, you know, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Um, that, that could be partly true <laughs> for pest management. So I think, yeah, we shouldn't be sitting back. It's more about how do we shift from, I guess, ecological theory to now um, sitting down and sort of thinking about the social context and how we might actually get that into sort of, um, you know, management and also policy. To learn more about Dr. Ritchie's research, visit his website at youandritchie.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Dr. Ritchie for his time, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>